Heavenly Father, it's so obvious that your Holy Spirit is here. I mean, I'm overwhelmed as we sing together because your angels are singing too. And, and as we open your word, God, may you speak to our hearts. May you give us a clearer understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know where you each live, but I wonder how many of you have an HOA. Yes, I see some hands. Um, Now, when I said those three letters, I wonder if fear came into your heart or maybe just disgust or frustration. Yeah, we have a homeowners association at Sweetwater Country Club where I live, and they're really great. The HOAs are a good thing because it keeps your home value, it, it protects you. It's a good thing because it keeps the place looking nice and, and there's good parts, but an HOA also gets a bad rap because they're the ones that have to, you know, uh, send those letters and they're the ones that have to keep the place looking good. They come across as jerks sometimes. Now, my HOA is pretty cool. Um, they're, they're good people. In fact, one of our church members, I won't tell you who they are, is on that board. I've made friends with that church member quickly, just in case, you know. <laughs> Soon after we moved into our home, we got one of those dreaded letters in the mailbox. Here we go. Yep, oh dear, that's right, Irene. And we opened this letter, and there it was, and it said, uh, you are not allowed to have portable basketball goals on your driveway. That's exactly how I felt. Ah, don't they know? I mean, listen, besides our swimming pool, our basketball goal is maybe the most important recreational piece of equipment that we have. I mean, it gets used daily. My boys will be out there with me. We'll play horse. We'll play around the world. We'll have three-point competitions. We'll have trick shot competitions. I mean, this is daily. We use this thing daily. And I get this letter, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Don't you know that I'm raising the next Michael Jordan? I need this basketball goal. And, and this is a place where parent and kid relationships are fostered and, and physical skills are developed. This is important. And then I thought, how can I get around this? See, there's a rebel in every one of us and in me too. And I thought, there's got to be a loophole here. And so I thought, well, the letter specifically said portable goals. They didn't say anything about in the ground goals. So I started doing research about how to, how to uh, take a portable goal and make it a permanent fixture in concrete there next to my driveway. I even went as far as to talk to Jonathan Landers from Landers Recycling to see if he had any six-inch pipe that I could uh, put in the ground and then put the post in. And oh, I did a lot of research on this. I was very invested in this. It's important. And just before I started digging the hole and putting concrete in the hole, I thought uh, a thought. It's simply this. This is not fair. This isn't fair. They're picking on me because I'm the new guy. The new guy that moved in, they're picking on me. Sure, they got rules and regulations, but this isn't fair. I mean, this is important stuff to me. And as I was thinking about them, I thought about all the other people in my neighborhood that also have portable basketball goals set up. I went as far as to drive around our neighborhood counting how many people have portable goals. Listen, if I'm going down, you're going down with me. 20 basketball goals, including one of our church members who will remain nameless, Lewis and Ann Hendershot. <laughs> it's okay, mine's still up too. It's all right. And, and I was thinking, man, there's, I wonder how the HOA is going to deal with this. 
They have a, a benchmark, they have a, a law, they have a rule, it's a covenant. We've agreed to it because we've moved into this neighborhood. Uh, what are they gonna do with this? Are they gonna just blanket statement and say, every one of you that has a basketball goal, you gotta either move or take the basketball goal down? Or are they gonna take it a case-by-case basis and are they gonna say, well, um, yours is a nice one or it's on the side of the house or it's, it, it doesn't look bad or if you just put flowers around it or whatever it is, how are they gonna deal with this? Because they have a law that they've set, a benchmark that it is, and people aren't living up to it, and so they either have to um, enact justice and say, listen, you need to measure up, or they have to give grace. And God, as the creator of the universe, at some point in time, he had to set the benchmark for the whole universe to see of what is right and what is wrong. He is in the place of the judge to determine who is good and who is not, I mean, he's the one who has to uphold the rules that he has made. He's in a dilemma because he's the judge, and he also is the one that gives justice and mercy and grace. In fact, there's a, a verse in Romans chapter 3 that Paul writes, and he gives this dualistic role that God is in. Here's what it says. It says, he did it, that is Jesus dying, Jesus died to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. In other words, he's the one that says, here's the law, you got to live up to it, but he also says, if you didn't live up to it, let me help you up to it. He's the one who is just and the one who justifies. And right now, in the heavenly sanctuary, God is in the very process of being just and justifying us right now. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a unique belief and doctrine, and if this is your first time in a Seventh-day Adventist Church, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Maybe uh, you have been a Christian or a Seventh-day Adventist your whole life, and you just don't know this part, but I'll tell you. So most Christian denominations believe in some sort of judgment, There's good and bad, there's right and wrong, there's a benchmark, and God at some point has to say, you've lived up to it or you haven't. But the Adventist church takes it a step further to understand when that judgment happens and what it looks like. We call it the investigative judgment, which sounds really scary. Some people call it the pre-Advent judgment, a judgment that happens before Jesus comes. It's the time before he comes where everyone is examined and you're determined if you're worthy to live with God for all eternity. But before you panic and freak out because this sounds terrifying to me, let me just help you understand it. You aren't worthy, and neither am I. In fact, not one of us gets that special nod from the Creator as He says, well done, good and faithful. You've done it well. You're perfect. You're righteous. Join me in the kingdom because every single one of us are in the same boat where we haven't measured up. But this belief, this investigative judgment process, it has very little to do with our unworthiness, where we haven't measured up. It has very little to do with the sin that you have. It has everything to do with the grace of God. You might think of judgment as something that's scary. Some of you might think it's boring. Some of you never really ever thought about it. But I believe that it simply shows a picture of God's love for you and me. In fact, this investigative judgment process this process of God looking at us to see if we've measured up, it is incredibly important. 
Here's how Ellen White puts it. She's one of my favorite Bible commentators. She writes in the Great, Great Controversy. She says this, the intercession of Christ on man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Somebody say, wow. You, oh, you, I'm in the wrong church. Y'all don't know how to talk. Somebody say, wow. Thank this is incredible. We think about Jesus dying on the cross, and we think that's the penultimate part of salvation, yet it's the judgment scene that is as important as Jesus dying on the cross. It's amazing. I don't know if you're understanding this, but um, it goes back to what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, you may have to watch it online. I'm not going to catch you up because we got to keep going. But as the priest in the Old Testament sanctuary, as he goes into the most holy place, he's representing all of the people, their repentant hearts, they've confessed, and as he goes into the most holy place in the presence of holy God, he carries this bowl of blood representing the lamb who was slain for our sins, and he intercedes before us. And right now, May 28, 2022, 12:19 p.m., in the heavenly sanctuary, Jesus is doing the same thing right now. In Daniel chapter 7, the Old Testament prophet, he's in the middle of this dream. It's a vision that God's given him. It's prophecy, and he's watching this celestial cinematic performance that's played out in front of him. Here's how it goes. This is what Daniel sees. He says, I looked. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. And you get this picture of a courtroom judgment scene where it's, it's unbelievable. The God of the universe is there on his throne. It's on fire. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that are there. Everyone's gathered around. It's a little bit terrifying already. And the books are opened. John, as he's in dream as well in Revelation chapter 20, he helps us with what the books are. Same scene here. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Are you seeing the scene? I mean, this is terrifying to me. It sounds embarrassing. It sounds mortifying. 10,000 times 10,000 people are in this room. Everyone's gathered around. Uh, everyone sees the judge in his throne. And then one at a time, he opens the book, and he begins to read the names and everything that you've done. This is terrifying. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want you to know what I have done. I, I mean, I, th this scene, it's, it's, um, it's terrifying to me. And if you're over 40, I imagine it like this, that, that God opens up the book of life that has every deed you've ever done, and he slides it under an overhead projector. This is why you're over 40, right? An overhead projector, and there it is on the screen. Or if you're under 20, a PowerPoint presentation. It's digital. And boom, now you've got your name at the top and every deed you've ever done listed below. This is terrifying. I mean, can you imagine this? But don't freak out yet because 
It's not like that at all. We'll get to the good part in a minute. Daniel's vision, it continues all the way into Daniel chapter 8. And at, the, uh, at one point, Daniel says, well, when is this going to happen, God? When is this judgment scene you're talking about? How long will it be? When's it going to happen? Here's what it says. God says to him, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Then the sin will be forgotten. Then the sin will be no more. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, for you Bible scholars out there, you know how it works. And for prophecy, you know that there are interesting parts of this. Now, here's the deal. I have ADHD worse than anybody in this room. So we're not going through the 2300 days like you may have ever heard it before. We need the Cliff Notes version because I can't pay attention more than about 35 seconds. So are you okay with that? Some of you already slipped into ADHD a coma. That's very nice. Here's how it works. Daniel looks at this. He says, when, God, when does the judgment scene happen? And he says, 2,300 days, 2,300 evenings and mornings. But you know that in prophecy, a day equals a? Oh, we've got 25 good Adventists in here. This is good. You know, in prophecy, a day equals a year. So Daniel looks at this, and he's not counting 2,300 days or seven or eight years. He's looking at this, and he's saying 2,300 years from some point to some point. Well, we know when the point started, you can put this on the screen, this little graph that we have for you. We know that in, that Daniel said, or God told Daniel, in the year that, uh, that uh, the Jews are told to go and rebuild the, the temple, that's when it starts. And we know in Ezra chapter 7 that King Artaxerxes says, you go build the temple, and it was in 457 B.C., Fast forward 2,300 years over the gap year of the zero year, because there's no such thing as a zero year, and you get to 1844, which is a very familiar number for Adventists. In fact, I would guess that if you went to pretty much any church in the world and you tried to get on their Wi-Fi and it was password protected, what would you try first? 1844, and I bet you'd be logged in instantly. But what's funny is that 1844 is a special year, yet it was long before the Seventh-day Adventist Church was created in 1863. Back in 1844, a group of Millerites, people that loved Jesus, including some of the founders of the Adventist Church, they had done the math. They'd figured it out. This was the time when the sanctuary would be cleansed. And they thought, it's the earthly sanctuary. Jesus is coming. And they stood there gazing into the sky, waiting to see Jesus come. And yet he didn't come because they got the math right, but they got the event wrong. Jesus wasn't coming to earth to cleanse this earthly sanctuary. He was entering the most holy place in heaven. And that's when the investigative judgment began back in 1844. And it continues even right now. But I want to take you a little deeper in this, this judgment scene. Back to the good part. You remember where I was talking about feeling unworthy and none of us are worthy? It's true. And if that truly is the case, then when your life story and your name comes up on the screen, it would be incredibly embarrassing. But look at that court scene one more time. Have you been to court before? Some of you have. Some of you are attorneys and lawyers. You've been to court. You live in court. I've been to court just a couple of times in my life. The very first was when I was a college student at Southern Adventist University. There's something about Collegedale, Tennessee, that is uh, common amongst anyone that's gone to Southern Adventist University. The police department in Collegedale, Tennessee, 
I think they're proud of the fact that they have given the most first-time speeding tickets to anyone on the planet. In fact, I bet they give themselves a plaque and hang it on the wall. Well, we did it again, 50 years in a row. Most tickets given to college students. Uh, I hear chuckling in here, and it's probably because you also got a speeding ticket. There's a, there's a slope going down the hill of University Drive as you come into campus at Southern Adventist University that's very easy to pick up some speed, and there's a path that's worn out on the side where cops sit all day long pulling over students over and over again. I was driving my very first car. Here's a picture of it. Look at that thing. Isn't that awesome? Chick magnet. How do you think I got married? Right there. Oh, man, it was awesome. I called it the blue blur. So fast you can't even see it. 1965 Volkswagen Beetle. It was so cool. I only owned it a year and sold it, and I wish I'd never sold that thing. Man, it was awesome. You might think, well, Pastor Matt, you're telling a story about a speeding ticket. It must have been in a different car. No, no. This little bug could get up and go. It was awesome. And as I'm coming down that little decline coming into campus, the blue lights start flashing in my rearview mirror. The cop comes up and he says, sir, here's your ticket. Uh, you can either pay it online or you can go plead your case before the judge. I didn't have any money. And so I, I, I decided I'm going to court dressed up in a suit and tie. It's funny, one of my classmates, she had the same court date because she'd been pulled over about 10 minutes before me. Same place, same cop. We rode together to the little courthouse. This is the inside of the Collegedale uh, courtroom. Some of you have seen that. It looks familiar to many of you. Brian Henning, you're nodding. You've seen this before. It, I mean, it, it looks the same as when I was there. In fact, the, the, the person in the plaid shirt, that was the chair I was sitting in when I was there. You walk in, there's people all over the room. There's some people that are there for speeding tickets. Many students, you're waving, hey, what's up? How you doing on, the, on your English class? Okay, good, you got that? Okay, good. You're looking at Southern Adventist University friends. There's other people that are there for domestic disputes. You see some other people on the, on the right that are in orange jumpsuits with handcuffs. There's guys with uh, police officers with guns. They're at the ready. There's the bailiff. There's the court reporters that are typing away frantically on their stenography machines. And then, of course... There's the judge. He sits right up there in those big leather chairs. And I remember seeing him, and he didn't look very friendly. And I waited for hours as one at a time people would go. He would call their name. They'd stand before him, and they would have this conversation with him of being guilty or not guilty. And finally, it was my turn, and I stood before him, and he said, what is your plea? And I said, I'm guilty. And while this is the courtroom scene in America— the courtroom scene in heaven is very similar, but with a much different purpose. The court in heaven, it has a judge, but he's not angry. He doesn't point his finger at you. He's the God judge of the universe, and he sits there and he smiles at you. And he says, are you worried? Are you worried about not measuring up? Are you worried about not being worthy? Are you worried about sin? Watch this. The point of heaven's court has nothing to do with your sin and unworthiness. It has everything to do with the love that God has for you. And because God is a God of transparency, He wants the universe to see not your sin— and not your mistakes, 
and not your failures and not your unworthiness. Instead, God wants the world to judge him to see if he is fair, to see if he is just. He wants the world to see his righteousness and his goodness that covers all sin. The Old Testament prophet Micah, we rarely ever go to Micah because it's just a small book and I don't even know what's in there really, you know, it's just tiny. In Micah chapter 7, Micah relays these feelings. See if they resonate with you. He says, Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. That sounds like a book being opened and your name at the top. There it is on the screen, all your sins before. He will bring me out into the light and I will see not my sins. What I see is his righteousness. Oh, isn't this a beautiful court scene? Do you see it? It's the most beautiful scene ever. When my name comes up, the list of every sin, every bad word I've said, every R-rated movie I've watched, every time I got angry, every time I judged someone, all my life failures and shortcomings are about to be displayed, and all you see is Christ's righteousness. When your name comes up, Jesus pleads your case. He represents you because he's our attorney, and he's never lost a case because when our sins come up, he says, oh, but wait, you forgot about one thing. It's the cross. This whole thing isn't about you. It has nothing to do with your sin. It has everything to do with the love of a God that paid the price because he was in the position, because he had a plan so that he could pardon your sin. There's only one Bible passage that I, I want you to look up today. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, and if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible, maybe you've got the Bible app on your phone. This would be one that you highlight and save. If you didn't bring either of those, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and you can follow along on page 484. Hebrews chapter 4, just a couple of verses, but I want you to have these buried in your heart because it changes the way you see judgment. It changes the way you see the judge. It changes the way you see the courtroom scene. And it's so powerful uh, to me, and I hope it is to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. I'll give you a second to turn there in your Bibles. If you're already there, say amen. amen. Okay, that's solid. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that beautiful? That's the picture of the judgment scene that we can approach with full confidence because it's God's love for us. A couple of summers ago, I bought a truck. I bought a picture for you. Here it is. This is, this is my current truck. Here it is. Would you rather have the bug or the truck? I'm just kidding. You're fine. Oh, man, I love this truck. 
I flew to Texas to get this because it was such a good deal. I mean, black, of course. It is hot in Florida. It doesn't matter. Black is it just it's beautiful. Big tires. I fit right in in Florida, don't I? Lifted trucks, driving around. I'm, I guess I'm the only one, apparently. Nobody else has a lifted truck. I love this truck. In fact, um, some people say, well, that's too nice of a truck for a pastor. And I say, that's a little judgy, don't you think? <laughs> what they don't know is that it's an incredibly old truck. It's a 2007 Toyota Tundra with 180,000 miles now. So it's old. I paid cash for it. But I like to keep my vehicles looking clean. So we wash our cars. I like to put the, 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 the tire dressing on there. I have this stuff. It's Meguiar's. If you fellows out there, maybe ladies, whatever. It's mirror reflect. And it's just, oh man, it's just beautiful. Uh, it's kind of slippery on roads, so be careful when you use it. Don't put it on your floor mats because you'll hit that gas pedal and go flying. But I love this truck. My kids know that this is a very important vehicle to me. They know if they're going to eat, they better not drop crumbs or they better pick those crumbs up. They know if they're going to ride their bikes, you don't ride that close to the vehicle because you might scratch it with your handlebars. They know that this is a very important piece of equipment here. Not too long ago, I was in the house working on a project. One of my boys came, come, came barreling in the house. Daddy, brother threw a rock and hit your truck. Y'all... I had to count to 10 twice. <laughs> had to try breathing exercises to get my head right before I went out there. I walked outside. There's my boy standing there in the driveway, shoulders sunken, just crying. I looked at him and I said, what happened, buddy? And he just pointed. And I, I said, hey, man, can you tell me more? And he said, I threw a rock without thinking and it hit your truck. And I looked over there and sure enough, right on the driver's side door, there was a dent about this big. Oh, it gets worse. It wasn't just a dent you could pull out with a suction cup. The rock had chipped the paint all the way down through the paint and down through the primer, all the way down to the metal. Oh, I thought to myself, this is an opportunity to show my kids what grace looks like. He's crying. His heart's broken, not because of the consequence that might come, but because he knew what he'd done. And so I sat down in the driveway, and I put him on my lap, and he's crying, and we talk. And I said, hey, buddy, you know what? This reminds me a lot of what sin looks like. Because when we screw up, when we don't live up to what God wants for us, we have sin and it makes these dirty spots on our lives. It's just ugly spots. It makes beautiful things look bad. And he, he looked at me, he said, yeah, daddy. I said, that spot on my truck, that dent, it's ugly. You know what the problem is, buddy? That takes a lot of work to fix. In fact, you got to go to a professional for that because it's got a dent in it and they're going to have to work in there and work their machines in there and beat on it a little bit to get that smooth again. Then they're going to have to take Bondo and then they're going to fill that little hole there. Then they got to sand it down. Then they got to tape everything off. Then they got to spray primer on the whole door. Then they got to sand it some more. Then they got to spray paint on it. They might wait a little bit, spray, spray some clear coat on there. I mean, this is a big ordeal. And he's feeling bad about himself, and I didn't want him to feel bad. And I said, but buddy, let's take a look at this. I reached in the truck, and I pulled this out. You ever seen one of these? It's Jesus in a bottle is what it is. 
It's made by Duplicolor. There's several different brands you can get. You can get them at AutoZone. What you have to do is make sure you get the right one for your paint color of your car. It's a paint pen. It's got this little tip on the end here. It's this abrasive tip that you, uh, you work right there in the, in the dent or the scratch and gets all the flaky paint off. Then you pull this top off, and there's the paint pen. It's tiny, and it's the coolest thing ever. You just press it into that, that bad spot, the ugly spot, the cracked where the paint's missing. You just press it in there, and the paint just kind of smooths out right there in the crack. And as I'm doing this right there in front of my kid, his eyes gets bigger. He said, this is cool. It's disappearing. You put that on. You pull this other part off. I'm not going to do it now. I did it earlier, and I got clear coat all over my hands, although it smells really good. You paint the clear coat on there, and it's like it disappeared. And I said, buddy, this is what it looks like with God's grace. The sin is obvious, yet God's grace covers it so you can never see it again. Man, the judgment of God, it's not scary. It's beautiful because it takes our ugliness and it covers it with God's love. May we approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that no matter what your sin is or how dirty you are, God's grace covers it all.